Okay, we, we began last week a discussion about the Jewish calendar. And my primary contention was that the Jewish calendar itself is a mechanism or means of studying the ideas, ideals, and values of what Judaism is all about. Critically important to understand that. On many points in the Jewish calendar, we celebrate a holiday. But our mode, our method of celebration of a holiday is not simply to read about the holiday, nor teach about the holiday, but rather... But rather, we live the values. And we then try to explain, what do I mean by living the values? We used as an example Shabbat. Shabbat is not simply a day we're in. We go through certain motions, but rather we tie our values, our ideas or ideals, to the day itself. We create an ideal moment in time. He speaks Russian. She speaks Russian. So don't don't collaborate over here. That's what I'm worried about. That KGB stuff, I can get in big trouble. I'm worried about it, right? You're right. So on Shabbat, it's almost obvious that when you say Kiddush, for example, what idea are you incorporating into Kiddush? You said Kiddush this past Friday night. What did you say when you said Kiddush? What idea? What Jewish idea? And what are the implications of that idea? Yeah? Exactly. Good. Interesting point. You said two things. You said the idea that Shabbat is about a lot of values. Judaism is a multi-tiered religion, multi-tiered values. And on Shabbat, one of the values that we speak about is that God created the world. Now, you said we testify. What do you mean we testify? What does that mean? We stand as witnesses to that fact. Now, what's interesting about that is that we stand during Kiddush. Why do we stand during Kiddush? Because when a Jew testifies in court, he stands. So, to that very point, that we want this to be a testimony, it's almost like an oath you're taking, it's a testimony, and when a Jew testifies, what does he do? He stands. Therefore, we stand while saying Kiddush. A means of testifying to that idea of Judaism. Now, of course, to many, it may seem to be a very abstract notion. God created the world. It's a very abstract notion. What does it really mean in practice, in theme? Well, it means that God has a power to create a human being. If he creates that human being, he creates a human being in a certain special kind of a fashion. What's that fashion? Selim Elohim, divine image. What does that mean? It means that you have the, you are infinitely valuable to God, and therefore you're infinitely valuable to each other, and therefore Shabbat becomes a celebration of the human being. What does that mean practically? Practically means that a husband and wife should engage in sexual intercourse on Friday night. Special mitzvah. Why? Because you are doing that which God did. You are imitating God. Imitatio Dei. Imitating God by creating life. There's no greater value than one can do than engage in the creation of life. So on Friday night, Jews theoretically or perhaps practically engage in that mitzvah. As I mentioned last week, you're not allowed to plant any seed anywhere else. The only two creative activities that you're allowed to engage in is creation of life and what else? Learning. Excellent. Creation of thought. On Shabbat, in theory or in practice, 
I step away from creativity and in that vacuum I allow God to enter. I step away and allow God to enter. I'm not allowed to engage in any kind of creative labor. No creative labor. But rather, I have to allow God to create or at least appreciate God as creator. With the exception of that is I'm allowed to engage in creation of human life and creation of thought, new ideas. The physical and the metaphysical, perhaps, if you will. So Shabbat is really a attempt. It's an attempt at living the values. I don't only preach that it's wonderful to create human life. I engage in the act of creation of human life. I don't only think about how wonderful it is to think. I actively engage in the act of thinking and teaching and learning and understanding God's world. That's what Shabbat's all about. So, therefore, what we say over here is that the Jewish calendar is a great exercise, not in celebrating holidays, but understanding Jewish ideas, ideals, and values. Another trivial example, trivial only because it's so well known, on the holiday of Pesach, we talk about freedom. But I don't only talk about freedom, I live freedom. How do I live freedom? I eat, by contrast, matzah, which is viewed as lehem oni, the bread of affliction. Why? And every third grader knows this, because the bread didn't have a chance to rise. Why not? Because the poor man is too hungry. He's too hungry to wait for the bread to rise, therefore eats it when it's flat bread, when it's a matzah. And I eat a bitter herb on one side. But Jewish teachings would be that I learn by contrast. What else do I do on the Seder night to learn the contrast from Jewish affliction and bitterness and slavery? I drink wine. I lean to my side. Look how interesting Jewish law is. God's in the details over here. Details very clearly so. What do I do? I lean to my left. If you didn't lean to your left, you drank your wine. What happens? Loyata. You didn't fulfill your obligation. You must drink the 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 beverage of kings, wine, leaning to your left, with all the glory, and my kids give me a pillow. Get a nice pillow for that night. So we live those values. A few weeks ago I raised the question. We all love July 4th. It's a great holiday. It celebrates freedom. And yet, what's lacking in the American celebration of freedom? Nobody celebrates freedom. How would you celebrate freedom? So, again, some people want to, let's say, celebrate the way we celebrate Jewish holidays. We don't say Tahanun, we don't say our plea prayer, but rather we go straight into joyous prayers. Some want to say that. I suggest that we have a synagogue barbecue, number one. You sing the Star Spangled Banner, number two. And then some of us, somebody has to create a text. Jews always celebrate the holidays with a text to learn on Purim. Right? We are so concerned with celebrating, celebrating the salvation from God. What do we do? We drink so much that we enjoy our freedom that we, we, we're drunk. We drink. And we read a text. What's the text called? We're glad to stare. So we have a text. We have a ritual by which we can celebrate an idea, ideal, or value. Every Jewish holiday. So if July 4th wants to be taken seriously, needs a text. What text would you suggest? It's obvious. Good. Every single year, every single member of a family should read the Declaration of Independence in order to be aware of what this is really all about. What's this country really all about? 
freedom, democracy, pluralism. If you're serious about celebrating this, then it should be done with a text. Read that text. I suggested that we send all a letter to George Bush thanking him for the country that he's leading. I did it. Wrote him a very nice letter. It's in the kitchen. I don't know if you could read it. That's, I, didn't, I just wrote it. And I'm always torn whether writing is more impersonal or more personal than typing. Do we agree that writing is more personal? Right? I think, yeah, if you can read it. Right. That's, I don't know. Secretary reads. No, no, he reads my mail. When I write, he writes. When I speak, he listens. No, he's talking to me, young man. So, I wrote him a letter. Just thank him. Not for anything. Don't support this bill. Don't let Jews come out of Russia or Syria and others. Just thank you for this country. It's a great country. Did anybody else in America write him a letter thanking him for leading this country? I checked. Was it a very gory letter? I think very. So that's a way of expressing, doing something, action. The Jewish insight is, is that to do something physically reinforces the idea that you have, and the idea that you have behind the action will reinforce that value. So you do, you think, you're on a continuum to fully absorb, appreciate, understand, and know those values. Good. So that's true, obviously, of every single holiday. You have a symbol, Lechem Onia Matzah. Roshanah, you have the Shofar. The symbol is not only a passive symbol, but rather it's an active symbol. You do something with that symbol. I eat the symbol. Bitter herbs or Matzah, or I drink wine. Or a, um, on Hoshana, I will blow the shofar. Obvious points. Good. Now the Jewish calendar, in this past three-week period, culminating today, is in a particularly difficult period, a very vulnerable point in the Jewish cal- calendar. Interesting, you could raise the question, is it normal for a person to commemorate defeats, to commemorate afflictions, to commemorate persecutions. Think about the American calendar, right? Could you think of any situation wherein we, wherein we, okay, wherein we commemorate a persecution or an affliction or a loss? We lost something. Now, Memorial Day, we are remembering those who died at war. So it's not really particularly commemorating we lost the war. Okay, December 7th, right? We don't celebrate. We don't commemorate it. It's not a holiday. We, I mean, the holiday in any sense of the word. I happen to know it. Yeah, Question: We have people my age or younger know it. But America really has one out of time. One out of time. One out of time. Sorry. We have a very minimal experience. Vietnam was Vietnam a loss? Vietnam is a recent thing, but it's been Vietnam. It's so forty long. years ago. Thirty years ago. It's spinning in the ocean. It's not. It's yesterday. Okay. Well, you know that. I mean. Let's look at that. How is this country? 200 years old. Two hundred. So 40 years ago was what percentage of the 200 years? 25% of, of our life. There's also a tremendous political movement not to commemorate. Why not? Because we lost. No, of course. There are many people debating whether we should have been there. Well, we were there and we lost. It's a proper way of commemorating. My point, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but that's Memorial Day. I'm talking about commemorating a loss. I'm wondering how they will do it, other than a memorial. 
Memorial is a very passive symbol. It's very passive. You go and you remember. I'm talking about creating a symbol that's active that you do to learn the values. Well, what values are September 11th about? You might want to say it was an attack on freedom, on democracy. So we should create a memorial that's active where each, every American should do something. I gave the example last week that Rabbi Telushkin had impacted, interesting how one man can impact, on Senator Lieberman by his book called Words That Harm, Words That Heal. And Lieberman, wanted, and in fact may have done this, wanted to enact a bill of one day of no speaking gossip. It's a very active way of commemorating that value. We all believe in Lashon Hara to not engage in it, right? Not to speak evil to somebody else. Very few of us actually are able to spend 24 hours without doing it, right? Whether it's on the phone or in person or about somebody who you play cards with, somebody that didn't invite you to a wedding or whatever it may be. Right? We always do this. Or on the internet nowadays. That's why it was created, to engage, facilitate Lashon Hara, right? Do it to one person, a lot of people. It's really amazing what email. At the same time, that's my point. So you can't, they wouldn't be angry that you told him before you told her what the issue was. So now, imagine that, to have a day where you actively disengage from Hashan Taking that value, putting it into effect. Right? That's what we living values. This particular period of time of three weeks, we commemorate Jewish tragedy, Jewish loss. I made the point on Shabbat saying that Imagine if we had a day wherein we commemorated every single Jewish loss with a fast day. We'd all be much thinner. In fact, I would dare to say there is not one day wherein we could really eat. If you think about, and again, one could go through the whole litany of tragedies that had befallen Jewish people. People often think that Shabbat is only about commemorating the destruction of the first temple, 506 before the Common Era. That's 2,500 years ago by the Babylonians. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were killed, yes. Uh, political leadership slaughtered, yes. Temple burnt, yes. And perhaps more significant, there was a psychological change in the people's own self-perception. Namely, what would you say? What would you think if you had a temple, synagogue, that stood for 400 years? Right. So one would raise that question. That's one second. That did God, in fact, leave us? And obviously, it was the role and task of the leadership of that generation to do what? To disavow that possibility saying that God still loves you, you are still the chosen people, even though history tells you what? You are not chosen at all. How could you be chosen if your temple is destroyed, 100,000 kids and you lost the war? Obviously, their God, Babylonian God, is stronger than your God, God no longer cares about you, close the book. And because Jeremiah, who was the prophet of that generation, was successfully able to teach the people that despite exile, Despite exile, you are still the chosen people. It's a hard sell. How do you convince somebody who's lost his parents and his family, who's exiled from his home, is living miles and miles and miles away, no hope of return, you're still chosen. But it gets worse. Again, I'll start the same way. People think the Shabbat is about commemorating the structure of the Second Temple, seven day after the Common Era. And here we have the Christian factor. Because this played right into Christian hands. 
How so? It proved the point. What point? If you reject the founder of their religion, you reject Yeshu, then obviously you're no longer chosen. Your temple's destroyed. You're exiled, sold into slavery. Hundreds of thousands of Jews. Josephus tells us that there were six million, six to nine million Jews when he lived, which is at the turn of the common era. Right? Six to nine million at that point in time. And complete devastation after that. So Christian said, see, we told you so. So you said, no. Impossible. The rabbis, Chazal, Tanaim, and Moraim, they had to strive mightily to teach the opposite lesson. God really still cares. God really still thinks you're the chosen people. And Christianity says, no, no, no. We are now the new chosen people. So what do you tell the Christian, your Christian neighbors? Wait till next year. You'll see. And next year it turns into five years. Then a decade passes. Then what happens? A century passes. What are you still singing the same mantra? Just wait. God will show that we're chosen. Christianity, meanwhile, is flourishing. Fantastic. Now what happens in the fourth century after the common era? Christianity is adopted by, by Romans. Constantine. So now we have the Holy Roman Emperor adopts Christianity as his Holy Roman religion. So all of a sudden, Christianity has a new thrust forward. We're sitting, waiting, twiddling our thumbs for God to really show us that we are chosen. Amazing how much patience Jews has. That's why so many Jews are doctors. They have a lot of patience. No good? Not good. Not good. Sorry. Take it Okay. What am I, five minutes? Uh, because we said, wait till next year. Wait till the next decade. Next century. Sixth century. Seventh century. The eighth century. The ninth century. We kept saying, wait, you'll see. Messiah will come and he'll choose us. Doesn't come yet. Eleventh century. Twelfth century. So now you've waited twelve hundred years from the birth of the founder of the religion. Nothing has happened. Right. And Christianity says, exactly, what's Christianity saying? You deserve it. We told you so. Of course, it's what happens to people that are, that reject the issue. Sorry? Right, exactly. Exactly. Then they're proving the point. I mean, that's catch-22. They're subjugating you, pogromizing you, killing you, and saying, see, we proved our point. You're nothing, you're zeros, you have no status, you have no property, you, have, you can't be part of the guilds. Uh, no, very different. Islam is a very different situation. Not at all. We had a very um, tenuous but comfortable position under Islam. As long as we abided by the Pact of Omar II, which is the 9th century after the Common Era, which means you didn't ride a horse, ride a donkey, you didn't have any Islamic people working for you, your synagogues were not as high as the as the mosque. All you did all that right, you lived well. Under Saladin, we lived extremely well. Though he was a fanatic, a religious zealot, and he had some moments of persecution, generally speaking, we lived well under Saladin. Nicely so. And prior to that, under the um, Fatimids, we lived well, very nicely. Okay, now that's different. That's in the western part of the world. In the eastern part of the world, we lived well. In the western part of the world, the, the uh, Al-Muhadis, who stormed out of Africa, went along, along the African coast, ended up in Spain, they were fanatics, and they were, and what was what probably fanaticized them even more was their battle with Christianity. Christianity was a diff, very difficult thorn in Islam's side. 
We share much with Islam. Muhammad says very wonderful things about us. We're people of the book. He calls us that. The first one to call us the people of the book. And we're therefore part of the Dhimmi. The Dhimmi is the protected minority under Islam. Protected. Right. Yes, there were certainly moments of persecution. No doubt about that. No question. But often enough, we did well with them. So Islam is really a different ballgame. Christianity was a horror story, although there were moments of salvation as well. One cannot deny it. There were moments of salvation. Certainly under, if we go a few hundred years into the future, under, Is, under Ferdinand and Isabella, we did well. Until what happened? Turkimada. But what gave Turkimada the fuel to energize Isabella to throw us out? Muslims. Exactly. Once Granada was conquered in 1492 by Ferdinand and the Reconquista, which took 400 years or 500 years, sorry, from 711, Charles Martel, Battle of Tours, all the way to 1492, Christianity was trying to Reconquista to reconquer the peninsula. Right? Finally did it with Jewish money. There's certain irony over here. Jewish money financed the battle against Granada, which is on the southern tip. They reconquered Granada. Now Christianity reigns supremely north, northern Spain, all the way down southern Spain. Fantastic story. Remember, southern Spain was always Islamic. All of a sudden now, northern southern Spain is all now one great, wonderful Christian country. And Torquemada then gives Isabella, says, more So he told her. I'm sure in Arabic he told her. Or in Spanish. Probably Spanish. Say in Spanish. English? Can you say it in English? It's embarrassing. What's embarrassing? You got rid of all the Muslims, and they're still Jews. The infidel Jews are still, they rejected Yeshua from the very beginning. So, of course, in March of 1492, they gave him a few months to leave. Tisha'a'av was the month. You have to leave on Tisha'a'av. So, coming back to my original point, on Tisha'a'av, we commemorate not only Horban Bayit, the short destruction of the first temple, not only Horban Bayit Sheni, but also the First Crusades, and then 1492 as well. And remember that the First Crusades, what year? 1096? 1096? Was nothing about the Jews. Simply, the Pope decided it's time for us to reconquer the holy city Jerusalem from the Arabs. Nothing to do with us. Yet, along the way, entire communities of Jews were massacred in the Crusades. That's the army. That's it was part of it, yeah. But the rabbis did want to incorporate and include all days of tragedy and mourning, which we'll get to in a moment, but that's very significant. Hold on to that second. And then besides the Crusades, also 1492, Spanish expulsion. Hundreds of thousands of Jews were massacred. Hundreds of thousands were expelled from Spain and then suffered a similar fate en route to someplace else. And hundreds of thousands of Jews convert to Christianity. I've often raised the question, what would you do if that were you? Would you convert to Christianity? Would you leave the country? Would you... Or, if you could, or would you be willing to commit martyrdom? Martyrdom means die for your religion. Yes, correct. It's hard to say. And what are your children? Would Many people converted, hundreds of thousands converted, they became the Moranos. Many Jews left, hundred thousand left, 
and many were willing to kill and kill their children rather than become a Christian. I know Tilda's very much upset about that. Right, correct. As opposed to Ashkenazim, most of them died. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the interesting questions. Why did that happen? Historical questions. Yeah? Naomi? I should call you Michelle, really. Not, no, I was called Michelle Naomi, so I was mixed up. Sorry? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Harambam includes, interestingly enough, in the very first book of Choyzeh Torah, chapter 5, nobody's ever raised the question, why did the Maimonides, I think we spoke about it in our class on Thursday nights, why did the Rambam include martyrdom in the very opening book, fifth chapter? Because it was relevant, because it was real. Remember, the Rambam also had to escape the al as well, in 1135, 13, 1148. Had to run away from the Amuhadis. So it was real to him, it was real to Jews throughout the generation. The Rama has a very clear statements. Maimonides, as one of the greatest Jewish thinkers, has very clear statements as to what one should do in that situation. Yeah, there were even, um, uh, like, during the Crusades, there were um, responses. Absolutely. Like somebody would ask if you had a choice between killing. Or actively kill is the question that's raised. Yeah, there are multiple, it's a very interesting study, there are multiple teshuvot, sadly enough, as to what one must do. And of course, different books came up different answers to that. Well, the Muranos pretended. The other way, yeah, but the other way, let's say the rabbi is wrong and you have to do I don't think there, I don't think there's any wrong answer to this. It's a hard question. I mean, well, but okay, but you you are denying. I said, but you're denying a very long history of martyrdom. Okay, and in fact, what was the model for martyrdom? What proved you should do martyrdom? God wants martyrdom. So the question is, what does God want in that case? That's the real question over here. What does God expect of me? So many brought, ironically, why say ironically? Because Abraham didn't kill his son. He did not die. Many brought that as the primary biblical example that God wants martyrdom. God wants you to kill your child in order to... No, no, no. I don't know. They interpreted that as an example that God wants martyrdom. You're saying no. That's hard to hear. But back down on Bob, didn't have Bob to a degree greatly lessened um, what he wrote in the Yad, um, what he wrote here at Hashemad, where he was much more liberal about this whole thing? Yeah, because he was dealing then with Islam. Islam is viewed not as paganism. Rabbam did view Christianity as paganism. Although, interestingly, the Ashkenazic poskim, the Ashkenazic rabbis, did not see Christianity as paganism. Did not see it as such. Maimonides did see it as such. And again, it depends, I guess, on how you view Christianity. What really is Christianity? Are you praying to a human being and deifying a human being? One has to analyze what Christianity really is, and based on that, what Christianity really is, 
the rabbis come to different conclusions about this question of martyrdom. Everybody agrees. I can't think of one disagreeing uh, posseic rabbi who would say that if somebody tells you to convert to Islam, you do it. You're not allowed to commit martyrdom. One should not commit martyrdom in that case. Islam is, uh, is, is monotheism. Christianity is Trinitarianism. Is that paganism or not, is the question. What did Muhammad say to you? Muhammad? What did he say to you Yourself or not? Do you have an idea? Yeah, well, I mean, jihad, which means to do battle, is to be willing to sacrifice yourself for your religion. So the, by extension, one would think, yes, he would want you to engage in that. Yeah. Sorry, Daniel? No, uh, oh, please. Okay. We have a long time. <laughs> I'm still hungry. <laughs> I need food for thought, because, you know, I haven't eaten for a while. So, Therefore, Tishabi Ab comes along, and the rabbis had set it aside as a day to commemorate all of these horrifying, tragic moments of Jewish history. We could go on. Think about the Chomeniki pogroms. Chomeniki pogroms, 1648 to 1650, 1651. 300,000 Jews were slaughtered, led by an agrarian revolt. It really was a revolt of the peasants against the landed uh, class, which again, the Jews were only the middlemen. They had nothing to do with this whole entire story. Why should the Jews have been attacked? They were attacking the aristocracy, the nobility. And again, as I mentioned to you once before, one of the shocks of life that I've had is when I went to Russia, and you see in various towns statues of Khamenei. They're praising this man. I, of course, always learned he's an evil human being. And yet he's praised in Russia as the man who was the first to free the peasants from their slave, from their slave status in the revolt against the landed middle class, the nobility, the aristocracy. Astounding. It's uh, akin to putting up a statue of Hitler to praise the man. It's probably a crime in Germany to do that, by the way. I'm sure that it's a crime to put a statue in praise of Hitler in Germany. There, this man was praised. So that pogrom, that difficult situation, as well as the 18th, the 19th, and of course the 20th century, the Shoah. One of the interesting conflicts that emerges from what we're saying right now is that, of course, Shabi'av was meant to commemorate all of the tragedies, all the tragic moments. What about the Holocaust? What about Yom HaShoah? Should we declare it to be a day that's distinct and different, and therefore commemorated differently? Or should we say it should be all included in the Shabi Av commemoration? It's a very difficult question. I was always been torn by this. And I often like to have my cake and eat it. <laughs> Except on fast days. Right? How would I do that? My concern is that if you only relegate it to the Shabi Av, it'll be lost. And it's too soon to have it lost in the mountain of other Jewish tragedies. And therefore it should have its own separate day. Yet on the other hand, it should not be isolated because a Jew dying in 1939, 1940 is no different than a Jew dying in the Khurban or in the Crusades or in the expulsion. It's all commemoration. And if there's something extraordinarily wonderful, in quotes, to commemorate with one day all of our tragedies because it puts everything on the same equal level. Can't say that one tragedy is worse than another tragedy because those who suffer from one tragedy suffered. It's the same. If you want to say that the Horban was worse than the 
Holocaust or the Holocaust and the Horban? How do you do that? Now, interestingly enough, the state of Israel had gone the route of specifically pointing a day, Kav Zayin Nisan, in order to commemorate the Holocaust, which is really appropriate. One should commemorate the Holocaust on that day. But one should not, therefore, negate the Shabbat commemoration, and therefore our prayers really should reflect that. Our kinot do not. Ashkenazic kinot. Kinot are prayers of elegy, prayers that you sing. Ashkenazim have extensive kinot, these prayers, commemorating all of these tragedies. And if your child went to a camp, let's say Ashkenazic camp, a large part of Shabbat is commemorating the Holocaust, one way or the other. In my daughter's camp last year, they commemorated by having different exhibits to different moments of tragedy, tragedy throughout the Jewish year. Appropriate. So you walk through this hall and you remember, you think, you feel, you see different moments of Jewish tragedy. Shabbat really is for that purpose. This is a camp stone. It's a very good idea to, to be able to create, the kids create the exhibits for a week or two before. So you have a timeline, you walk through Jewish history, you're walking through Jewish tragedy. But at least you have a sense of what Shabbat Av is really all about. And of course the Holocaust plays a very prominent role in that as well. That should be the case. For some strange reason, the Sfaradim didn't do that. Our kiddot are much older. Or we didn't experience it. But we should have thought more broadly and thought about Klal Am Yisrael with the, with the rabbis who established it. Right. Right, okay, agreed. Agreed. Yes, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. So many Well, remember that during the expulsion, first of all, during expulsion, you took, uh, you know, 300,000 to half a million Jews between the conversions, the killings, and the escapes, and everything else, didn't make it. Spa those are Spanish Jews. Sephardic Jews, yeah. Sephardic Jews. Would probably one explanation explanation of that. Also, what Shem said before is very true. Sephardim found it much more easy to convert, to go over the line, than, than Ash Ashkenazic Jews were willing to be, to be killed or to kill the children or be killed. Some certainly, cer some certainly fled there, yeah. Abba Benel, one of the great Jewish intellectuals of 1492, writes in a very moving fashion in his introduction to the Haggadah. He writes about what it's like for him now, before he was a king, sitting at the, literally at the king's table. Now he's a pauper, his money was taken away, he has nothing, his, his children, he, he cries. You, 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 the fate that he had. Mm -hmm. A piece which tells it about that. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, so he describes how difficult it was. So that's all part and parcel of this discussion. You know, and also a lot of other historical factors played a role in the ultimate demographics. At one point, Sephardim were the majority of Jews in the world, and up to the 14th, 15th century. But with this expulsion and, and tragedy, the Jews, the Sephardic Jews had gone down, and then Yishkenazim had much higher birth rate. Interesting question. Of course we know that the wealthier you are, the less children you tend to have. And that seems to be true in contemporary times. Right? America has a very low birth rate because we're such a wealthy country. Right? In poorer countries, 
the birth rate is much higher, right? Despite the poverty. Not really. I had a tutorial in the Wall Street Journal about a month ago. It shocked me to show that in many of these very, very distant countries, where there were eight or nine kids 50 years ago, whatever, now they're down to one and two. Is that by government policy? Or UN I'm efforts? Cause they, China, no, because they tried that way. Because the, the UN plays a very strong role in dispensing uh, birth control. Right. So, I, so it, it's an interesting question. Whether or not Sfaradim, who, gen, yeah, Sfaradim who, were, who, were very, who were well off in Spain and other places, who did very well, maybe they had a lower birth rate than Ashkenazim, who didn't do as well. That's something that has to be studied. That's something we don't know, that question. Yeah, they always did. Yeah, they always did. Well, that's yeah, correct. That you're right. We have one thing. That well, you have to you have to get you have to get no, you have to get relative numbers. Let's go short of the Holocaust. Uh, how many Jews were killed in a crusade? How many were burnt at the stake? About five to seven thousand Jews were burnt at the stake. And if you took a village, you rooted it out, you wiped it out. It was six, seven thousand people. Yeah, there were plenty of pogroms and there were plenty of uh, crusades, but they were smaller. The animosity was much greater. The hatred of the Jew by the Christian was much greater. When you talk about, you know, a couple hundred thousand Jews, that was very difficult. On the other hand, you had the Chomeneki programs, which didn't involve hundreds of thousands of Jews. So it's a very complex question. Rabbi, if you look, for example, America, if you go around, travel around the South, around the Caribbean and so on, there are shul, shul after shul, shul, which are all Sephardic. Right. Mm -hmm. Now they are warehouses. Those Sephardic right. Jews are gone. They converted they out. They're Christian. They're Christian. gone. They're right, gone. correct. Gone. Yeah, good point. So you have to wonder about that also. Yeah, there are a lot of factors in, in this, this particular question that needs to be studied. Okay, back. So therefore, Shabbat really is a day wherein we commemorate all of the Jewish tragedies that took place during our very difficult 2,000-year history. Right? It's, a, it's a known as a mourning period, and we physically engage in the act of mourning. Last night and up to today, today midday, we don't sit on chairs. We sit down low. As a mourner sits down low. We don't shave. We don't eat meat. We don't wash today. We don't wash. We don't uh, shower. We don't anoint ourselves. We don't wear shoes. All of these were are issues that are true of mourning. So we actually physically engage in this act of mourning. Now, here it's interesting because we didn't simply relegate it to one day, but rather for three weeks. And the opposite of the normal mourning. Normal mourning is... The most intense happens the day, of course, of, of burial. Seven days, 30 days less so, and one year even less so. This is the opposite. We build. The three weeks, we have no weddings, no festive occasions, no parties. And again, there are different customs about this. Sardim did have weddings up to a certain point. Chavodiah writes that he had weddings. Different customs throughout different time periods. But it, however you see that. And then we intensify the nine days, no meat. We intensify the week of Shabbat, we don't shave, and finally we end up Shabbat itself, the most intense day, commemorating all of these tragedies. So we don't only simply speak about it, learn about it, talk about it, but rather we engage in an act, a physical act of non-eating. Don't eat. That tends to focus the mind. We also, all the physical things, not washing, not dress, all of these issues that we did, not wearing clean uh, laundered clothes, all of that ha tends to 
take the value of commemoration and not only do it mentally, but rather physically as well. Again, point to the notion that we try to physically live our values. Good. So we have a three-week period of time, which culminates on Sha'a Be'av. How subjective are those categories? Do you think that the Jews are Very important question, a very difficult question, because it really involves Jewish legislation, halacha. You could engage in a very creative exercise and think about what would you do if you were the rabbi. This question tomorrow also, because we asked this question before. What would you do if you were the rabbi who is now about to set policy to commemorate a tragedy? What would you do? In other words. There's a value in commemorating a tragedy, right? That's the premise, right? We all agree with that. So now, what would you do if we wanted, if you wanted to commemorate? Not taking haircuts, not eating meat. Would you say, no, eating meat's okay? Would you say, having weddings are okay? What would you do to commemorate? Uh, so you, the rabbis tried to commemorate. They took Shabbat Tammuz, which was the day the walls were breached in the structure of the Second Temple. The walls are breached. Three weeks, there was hand, uh, one can even call it fighting. There was a slaughter of the Jews of Jerusalem for that three-week period of time. And finally, the night of Av, temple is burnt. Devastated. So Rabbi said, let's commemorate this. How should we do so? So their first thought was a fast day. Is that appropriate? Does a fast day do anything to commemorate? Or does it only make you tired and sleepy and hungry? You suffer. So you almost empathetic, you begin with by an act of empathy for those Jews that were killed. I would say there, multi, there might be multi-tiered reasons as to why a person fasts. Part of it, uh, part of it might be certainly you want to commemorate the transgressions and why it happened, and therefore the day of Shabbat is a day of Teshuvah as well. But, but really the focus on the morning aspect of it. I always have a problem with the morning aspect of the Shabbat. I mean, I told you about seven years ago, I had no problem sitting on the floor for Echa and but once that really became real life, became real in my life, unfortunately. And I, I, I couldn't put the Shabbat up and real life on the same level. Well, I think one should not. I would agree with you. One should but not put on the same level. I read somewhere this week that it should be, and that's one of the reasons because you don't feel that same sense of grief or the... You can't feel the same. It's not... I don't. Wherever you read it, I think it's, it's a, uh, inadvisable to read. I know where you read it, and I wouldn't read that because it doesn't make sense to say that. I mean, to experience the, to experience the, the grief firsthand, right. you know, and to expect somebody to empathize with something happened 2,000 years ago is not humanly real. Whoever wrote that maybe never experienced mourning or whatever. I mean, this... So they have you read tragic stories all day, so you can stuff by Christ. I don't see it. I don't really see it. I don't understand. I, I mean, what causes a person to empathize closely with an act of, of 
of history of 2,000 years ago. You know, when you read something from Echa, let's say, <coughs> you want to get a Echa for me, please? Bishlu, oh yeah, Bishlu, Bishlu, Nashim, Nacham, Yot, Ed, Yal, Dehen. For that, you can cry. The, the poverty, the affliction was so great that women would consume their children. Hard to believe. Bishlu, Nashim, Nachman, Yot, Yal, Dehen. Okay, so that is something that can evoke an emotional response. But still, let's remember, you know, and I always find it almost ironic that people can cry for the Khurban bin Amikdash of 2,000 years ago, but they don't commemorate Shabi'ah, uh, Shoah, the Holocaust, which happened 50 years ago. That I cannot conceive. And that's real. How is that real? The movies are real, the books are real, the first-hand accounts are real, that you can see. You're living it, right? The survivors, you see that, and you can cry for that. You're seeing a survivor, number, makes you cry. If they won't cry for that, then they'll cry for two thousand. It sounds to me artificial. So I agree with your point. No, I, I agree. There's another element, and the other element is that the mourning, the the, the beer, no weddings, etc., etc., etc. Exists tonight. We're going to say a piece in the prayer, which some rabbis won't say. Nahim, the right. that, um, and there's a land where nobody lives in, and so on and so forth. Right. Agreed. We're living in a a faith right now because we have a state we have a Correct, tremendous sure. state we have no we're a sovereign nation etc et and we exist now as if it was a thousand years ago I mean I found a piece now which I'm not going to read which says that you know a whole category if there is um, decrees against the Jews it's one level if there are no decrees but there are voices it's another level if level of what? Level, 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 level. Doesn't regard that. The Jewish world. The Jewish world doesn't regard that. It's as if nothing ever happened. It's actually I correct. That, I mean, I, it's I, time I, lag. You're no, right. It's not time lag. It's that there is some desire to continue this this thing, whatever it may be. I, I don't know what it is. There's some desire to dress ugly and grow these silly, disgusting looking beards, <laughs> etc., for three weeks and so on. I won't take that personally. And. and no, I think it's I think it's the nature of Jewish law, and I think it's the nature of the Jewish community that we now have. I mean, con- the global Jewish community. Well, it's the nature of some personality types. Well, personality who, who types. Establish it, and they become the competitive the example that has to be completed. Yeah, well, that's true, and it happens slower. Slowly, it happens where there are changes that are made. Actually, and again, as as we mentioned a couple of um, days ago, this little prey, which does not reflect our reality. Um, is sort, there are some who want to change it. You know, some rabbis in Israel, legitimate rabbis want to change it because they feel that that prayer is just no longer relevant to the to the matters at hand. So you're right. But again, there is a time lag in halakha. There's a time lag as to who has the the boldness to change something. It's a prayer on page 234 of this sidur, which says, We request of you, God, to comfort the mourners of Zion, and the mourners of Jerusalem, and the city, this is strange, which is destroyed, shamed, desolate. does not describe Jerusalem today. To the contrary, Jerusalem today is a beautiful, wonderful, active, vibrant city. In our community alone, in the last 30 years, things have greatly increased rather than reduced. This business of not having the weddings, as you mentioned, between, you know... It's a different issue. But it has grown and grown and has become the rule Whereas 30 years ago, it absolutely wasn't the rule. Uh, agreed. Always the rule. I got married 20 something years ago. You couldn't get married. Well, 
with that 40 years ago. We should have gotten married 40 years ago, then we would have known the answer. No, the different customs. I don't know what the Syrian community did 30, 40 years ago. You recall weddings 30, 40 years ago? No, that we didn't have friends who had nine days, period. You said you couldn't get married. We couldn't get married. We couldn't. No, but what I, we were told by an, by an old sir is that the reason that they didn't have weddings is they couldn't get a caterer because they were Ashkenazi caterers. <laughs> No, That's what I was told. No, but we're saying no, no, but the rabbis. But we were told they didn't have they didn't have weddings because they couldn't get a caterer. Chacham Yosef says that they have weddings in Jerusalem during the three weeks. Wait, that yeah. music? Sure. Sure. I, I asked that question. Oh, I would have, I would, it says absolutely. Wedding, you get married. It doesn't say anything about any part of the game. Yes. Okay. So I'm surprised, I'm surprised, given we were very dependent on Ashkenazim for some religious support. And if the Ashkenazi community was not doing it, I, I suspect either out of desire to be Agreed. somewhat in line with them, not to be conflicting, there was that readiness. In those days, right? Agreed. Like, I agree. 45 years ago, there weren't too many catered affairs, period. Oh, okay. Right. So that probably no, wasn't no. even the factor. issue. I agree. Could have been a post facto uh, rationalization. Right. Yeah, I don't disagree. Yeah, I don't disagree. I mean, of course you're right. I mean, those are all, all facts over here. But we don't want to talk about that. Yeah. Okay, that's part of the factor. Let me just finish uh, back to Saul's question. So this Naham prayer is really a uh, a very profound prayer, but it doesn't reflect our reality. Meaning that over here, Naham, God comfort the mourners of Jerusalem, the mourners of Zion, and this devastated, desolate, shamed city without any children in it. How many people are living in Jerusalem now? Maybe about uh, 600,000 about? And her head is covered like a woman who's barren, who's not had any children. And the legionnaires have swallowed her and inherited her. And they had and they had put the Jewish people to the sword. And they killed all the righteous people. Therefore, Zion shall cry, shall mourn. And Jerusalem, Jerusalem shall lift up her voice. Libi, Libi, calling Echa, my heart, my heart, and all of those murdered people, my entrails, my entrails, and all of the dead people, Kiata Hashem, because you, O God, burnt it. It's interesting that the blame for this is laid at the feet of Hashem, which is what Yirmiyahu does, in fact, say, because you, God, did this. And yet, in the future, shall you shall rebuild the city with fire. And it has a verse, I shall be for the Jewish people a wall of fire around it, and I shall be a source of glory in the midst. Baruch Hashem, we acknowledge our God, Menachem, you who comfort Zion in building up Jerusalem. This doesn't reflect what Jerusalem is all about today. So Dr. Shammah's point over here is that this should be changed. 
But again, Bobby's point is, but once you start changing this, what else should we change? Change. Okay, so change is a very difficult, slow process on the Jewish calendar. Change happens, yeah, incrementally so, evolutionarily so, not revolutionary so. And there's always these, you know, radicals sitting in the back row over there who want to change everything right away. You have to be concerned about those revolutionaries, right? So uh, we do agree with them in theory, but I'm much more cautious. Here it would be relatively simple, the chief rabbinate of Israel. And I think that would be followed by everybody. The chief rabbinate of Israel is a very powerful institution that could, through the act of, of one pen, change this in a way that would reflect past tense rather than present or future tense. And it could be done. And again, it just takes the will of a certain kind of forward-thinking, perhaps, chief rabbi. I would say, let's make this more real. That's an interesting question. The chief rabbi said that Menhag Vishlam is to have weddings up to the uh, nine days. But uh, the Syrian community chose at one point, I think for Victor's reasons, that it's not appropriate. For different reasons. Yeah, sorry. I'm thinking of question. Uh, and your interpretation is true that the paragraph is intended is a little bit too serious for the situation today, but certainly it's far from ideal. It's far from ideal. We are far, no, no. What's your ideal? What is relevant? Physical liberty, spiritual liberty, religion, and food. What do we need there? What are the ingredients? I'm asking you, what, what, what do you want? I see. What's your ideal? I'm asking the question there, Professor. Oh, that's an easy way out of it. The other problem is that it seems to me, we seem to be in the part of, uh, as far as commemorating things, we seem to be very traditional, which means whatever institute we want to keep it for good. And part of the survival has to do with maintaining traditions, and tradition has values other than uh, we create new things and we have nothing to do with the past. Agreed. So if you create this and you create a lot of things and you don't consider the permanent consequences, you could dilute. Right. Or, or what's the or? Yeah. Yes. What's the what, What's the downside of what you're saying? Emotional need. Agreed. Rather than a permanent uh, solution. However, there's a however to what you're saying. Uh, it's difficult. I'm not saying absolutely. You're practicing a fossilized. You need to be a, a prophet. Okay. Agreed. What, what we did is came to the prophets and. Very little has been added since then. Okay. Not exactly accurate. My problem with what you're saying is that, of course, I agree with part of what you're saying. There's a need to keep traditionally. On the other hand, you, be, you, risk the run, the, you run the risk of becoming irrelevant. In other words, imagine if you are a, a Jerusalemite and you're reading this, it's not reflecting. So, better is to create another prayer which reflects the past, exactly what you're saying, and rooted in tradition. And yet, also have another two lines which says, but on the other hand, naturalism is spreading, it's growing, it's grandiose, it's beautiful, we all love to spend time there. This, this, this does not reflect to Jerusalem at all. Different city. This, this sounds more like Bangladesh than it does Jerusalem. It's the best part of it. I mean, the Arab world is certainly original to Jerusalem, and that's totally reflected. There's a reflection Partially. So, Partially. So, so now you're really in between. Agreed. So your prayer should reflect that in-between status. Somehow. Because otherwise, you don't want to run the risk of irrelevance. And that's the frightening part of that. How long can you keep reading a prayer which does not reflect at all the reality? It's almost like saying, let's say um, we kept, let's say we moaned the fact that we were in this old building 
broken down to the other pre this building shul. It was old, it was broken down, it was horrible, disgusting, it was terrible. We had rats and we had raccoons and we had uh, infestations and everything else like that. Right? So imagine if we kept on mourning that we're in this building. It wouldn't make sense. No. No, no, no. I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm, I want my prayer to reflect the history, but also to reflect the present. Okay, but this has to be placed not from the present tense into the past tense. Because Jerusalem is not now bizuyah, it's not now uh, shamed and dis- devastated and destroyed. Once the revolution leaves, you can start talking honestly about what I really feel. <laughs> wait, so what you know I'm saying? So we want them to reflect it the way it really should be. Nahem. Has such a visual effect that I, I feel as if I can connect to that horrible time. But it's not present. I'm talking about some one Orthodox rabbi suggested that. Yeah. Change it into the past tense, which we, which we should right. mourn and reflect this. And then update it with something else. But again, Ezra wouldn't want that, so I'm not doing it. I'm, no, just this, I didn't see this myself, but I heard that. The Buddha said that during the second temple, the same commonwealth was charged. Sure. So they, I don't know exactly what was the values, but they discussed it. So maybe it's quite a lot. Why would they have been there? Why would they have been there? Because it wasn't the same glory, but the first. The second one, people cried when they saw the second one, as opposed to the first. The second one. What level did they maintain that morning? Our extent to that, I think to a lesser extent, but I still want to maintain what it was. And also, to some degree, the discomfort the rabbis may have had with what Berakdash became. Through the years, the, the imagined or perhaps real idealized version of, of the height of spirituality, the height of religiosity, the height of piety, was never achieved again. Well, might it also have been the desire to keep historical issues presence so that yeah. people don't get complacent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, to keep on striving towards the ideal. And to remember that this happened once, that it was a horrible thing, we've corrected it to a certain extent, but we shouldn't sit on our laurels and imagine that uh, all is well. God is now, you know, all forgiving and we can go about our business, do what we want to do and not, and not suffer the wrath of uh, whatever land in the future. So. Right. Agreed. Agreed. Okay, so what we're saying over here is that we try to make Shabbat into a very real day, and we try to commemorate it by physically living these values. We see a value into remembering. We see a value into commemorating. We see a value into trying to relive, to a certain extent, all of this. And again, it's an experience to go to Jerusalem on Shabbat and to be at the Wailing Wall. That is an experience because then you are much close to the event, and then I can see what people cry because you're there. You're, you're, you're so physically close to the place, you see what was, what is not now and what was then, so you could, I could see that being more emotionally profound than simply doing it from a thousand miles away. Nahem, you're back to Nahem. Well, so you have a very serious problem with the concept of the truth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. 
Of course, the day should remain the same. It's a difficult question. There are certain times where the Jewish calendar cannot respond quickly enough to events. I agreed. Okay, agreed, agreed. It's a difficult issue. I'm not saying that that's that I have the answer to that question. It's very difficult, and sometimes again, the Jewish calendar does not reflect reality. Jewish calendar, even something as the Shoah, as the Holocaust, which is such an obvious day to commemorate. The only excuse you have not commemorating is because you included Shabbat. But again, Sfaradim don't include Shabbat, don't include Holocaust Shabbat at all. Not in the prayers, not in any manifestation whatsoever. Ashkenazim do. We don't. Okay. So now. Even that, which is an obvious day to commemorate, nobody commemorates in the Syrian community. Nobody thinks of having a Yom HaShoah commemoration on Shabbat, and the other one, to have it during Kav Zayin Nisan, we're condemned for it. Why are we condemned for it? Not only that, because it's during the month, correct? Because it's about the Omer, it's the month of Nisan. Okay, good. So, however you view it. So, even that, with six million Jews had been slaughtered, and Nazism as the evil par excellence, we can't even agree to commemorate that day. The calendar does not always reflect reality. But, but I think part of that reason is because of the problems that the, um, uh, shall we say, um, ultra-Orthodox Europeans have dealing with the whole Shalat problem, especially since many of their leaders urge their congregants not to leave. I mean, we... It's true. We it's true. That, um, of course that's true. I think it might just be kind of religious, uh, you know, inertia. Uh, well, we understand what they can't do deal with it. We understand that. So that might part this as well. So again, often enough, the Jewish calendar does not always reflect what takes place. Ashkenazim, for example, added a prayer called Yukum Purkan Min Shemaya after the Chamanaki pogroms. They say to this very day, we don't say it, it didn't affect us. So they really do, in fact, add to the Sidur on repeated occasions. Um, <clears throat> during the Middle Ages, during the pogroms, or during the Crusades, they added various prayers to their Sidur, Roshana, whatever else it may be. So they add. Saradim are much more traditional, we don't add, we don't subtract too much. So it's really a question of the mentality of the people to try to have the calendar reflect the things that took place. I want to go on a little bit more uh, with those who are not aware where you have to leave I know uh, we pray at 10 to 8 so we'll go to yeah so you can either stay or there's another class going on or you have to go okay thank you for coming you feeling better? day by day, day, by day. okay good okay um, and we'll just go do a little bit more and we'll stop about 7.30 if you want you have to go also? yeah we'll show we miss you next Thursday next Thursday yes join us Okay, we'll go to about 7.30, then we'll take a break. Okay? Now, part of the way that we try to connect to the past and try to commemorate Shabbat is, of course, by the praise. There are three significant, one might say, prayers or statements, better statements, that we make on Shabbat itself. First, Ha'azinu. Ha'azinu was, of course... Ashkazim, I don't know if they say Ha'azinu. The next two they do. I don't know. It's interesting if they don't, because the um, question would be, at what point and why do we do this? One has to raise that as a question. But the three actually, are, number one is Ha'azinu, number two is Echa, and number three are all the keynote that are said, these 
very mournful, poetic, elegiac kind of statements that are made in the evening of Shabi Av last night, as well as during the, the morning prayers today. And it's extensive. I mean, it's, it's 20 to 30 minutes, 40 minutes of these poetic creations, which again reflect on what was, the pain, uh, the tragedy, all regarding Shabi'ab, the destruction of Ben Amikdash. All Ben Amikdash related, which is interesting. No other tragedy is reflected in these kinot. And Ashkenazim you're going to find it to be very different. Very different. But these three, Ha'azinu, Echa, which was written by Jeremiah, five years before the common era, as well as the kinot, which were written throughout the Middle Ages, all tried to convey a certain sense of the tragedy. Now, sorry? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, completely different creations. One of the um, high points, if one could say that, of the keynote is that on Shabi Arab, Rabbi would spend five, six hours going over the keynote every Shabi Av. There will be a book coming out one year from now by Rabbi Shachter, who has ten years of notes of these keynote and Rabbi Salvech's explanation of them. I have a few years of them. And it's he explaining the different historical periods, when it was written and what it was done and what idea it reflects and what value it reflects, etc. So that's what one should be doing with Kinot. With Sephardic Kinot, it's much easier because there's only one theme. It's mourning the destruction of the Temple. That's really it. But in his, in Ashkenazi Kinot, they're much more complex. The Bias Kalir, well, much more complex poetry than ours is. So it's, he does spend enormous amount of time five to six hours of elaborating on what these keynote mean. Now let's raise the question. Why do we say Ha'azinu? We said it last night, and we said it today. What does Ha'azinu have, this biblical portion? Remember, it's next to the last parasha of the Torah. The last parasha of the Torah is the book of Devarim, is Zot Beracha. Before that comes Ha'azinu. Ha'azinu is a, po- it's a poem. It's a poetic creation. It, about it, about it, God tells Moshe, write it down, see what it for him, place it in their mouths. I want them to know this poem by heart. What does this poem have that becomes so central to the Jewish people? And more significantly, what does this poem have that we read it on Shabbat Last night and again today. We read it last night and today. And here, we never really will infuse a biblical section in, into the tefillah itself. But, this morning, after Bayosha Hashem, right, we, after Ajashin Moshe, we put on Very surprising. So obviously, this particular poem has something of great significance and relevance to Echa, or to Shabbat. So now, on a literary level, I'll give you the hint of this. It's very simple. Here we have the word Echa. Right? <clears throat> echa means, how could it be? It's a poetic form of the word Ech. How could it be Echa? Which, of course, is the way that this 586 Jeremiah creation begins. Echa Eshvabadad. Ayeka, correct. That's where are you? 
it's interesting that is, is you saying that implied in the where are you is how could you do this? Okay, I, I don't see that as a problem. Yeah, I could hear that. Okay, good. So here we have this poetic creation, Ha'azinu, and I'm raising the question now, other than the literary parallels of Ha'azinu to Echa, why are we saying this? The whole thing, the whole content, relates to punishment, relates to doing wrong, relates to God's anger, how God would react when the people don't do what's right. Correct. Good. Okay. Good. Probably might be deemed to be even some sort of, you know, foreshadowing of what could happen. That's told. And what did happen? And what did happen? Good. So we're seeing over here. You'll see the themes don't exactly correspond to Echa. We'll see that in a few minutes. But what's interesting over here is that this is a foreshadowing, I like the word, it's a prophetic account of what's going to happen if you don't follow the right law. You're going to be punished. And of course, that really is the primary theme of Shabbat, of the rabbis. They didn't follow through Yirmiyahu. Because they didn't follow the right theme, therefore they were punished. Now, interesting over here is that the first theme, the first notion of this is what's, no, not yet, is what's known as theodicy, which is justification of God's ways. God's right and we're wrong. Tragedy strikes. We can always lay it at the doorstep of God and say, joyful. No, we do what's called Suduk Hadin. Suduk Hadin means justify that which took place. Right? Here he says, Moses says, I'm going to invoke the name of God, give praise to God. Have a good, give praise to God. God is perfect. It's a very bold, bold statement in the midst of a tragedy. All of what God does is perfect. There is no evil in God, a God of faithfulness. Tzadik Yashar, who? God is righteous and straightforward. But, Shehedloh, his children, God's children, have corrupted themselves. They've become a twisted generation. Now comes the very famous large hair. Hair Sheela. Hal Adonai Are you going to attribute all to place to God's erring ways? You foolish, non-wise people, God is your father. God is the one who created and made you. Remember the earlier days. Ask your father, he'll tell you. Ask your elders, they will tell you. All was wonderful. God gave to you. God gave you this great land. He took you at, from the desert people. A period of desolateness. Difficulty. But rather, he surrounded you. He built you up. He safeguarded you as he would his own, the own pupil of his own eye. God loves and cares about you. And then comes the Pasuk before, mentioned before, but what took place? What happened terribly over here? You, O Israel, became fat with your complacency. You kicked out. You become engorged. Huge. Everything was too good for you. And therefore, what did you do? You left God. It's an interesting question about human nature. Does one who, who has everything tend to forget God? You have wealth, health, and riches beyond imagination. 
that's human nature. Everything is complacent, everything is fine, peaceful over here, tranquil. There's the opposite. There you don't forget, here you forget. So that's what Azin was really saying to us. Shemad said, you've become so complacent, you've abandoned God, you've paganized your homes, your societies, to you've angered God, you've sacrificed to the demons, not to gods, gods you've never known before, new things. You've forgotten he who gave birth to you. God becomes angry for all that you've done, and therefore God says, I will hide my face from them to see what will be their end. You are a twisted generation. You have no trustworthiness. You have attempted to make me jealous with a non-God, made me angry with your nonsense, and so on, therefore, comes the punishment, intense punishment. So this clearly is a good foreshadowing of what really took place. So. It seems that God is punishing only you. You haven't talked about the Christians. The Christians are Interesting question. The interesting answer can be found if you were to read the prophetic literature, beginning with the first literary prophet of Amos, prophesied around the 750 before the Common Era. He does make, in fact, a opening statement about the surrounding pagan nations to Israel, all of all of whom, all of whom created uh, had committed transgressions, not paganism, but rather acts of immorality, cruelty, and therefore they had to be punished, and they described their punishment. All the seven surrounding nations are all punished because of their acts. And then it says, You, Israel, I have been intimate with, close with, in love with. Therefore, I'm going to take note of your transgressions. So, God operates on multi-tiered levels. He does, in fact, punish the pagan non-Jewish nations. We don't really understand, of course, God's method of punishment. It's beyond us. It's focused on his favorite child. But every prophet, every Navi, all speak about the pagan nations and that they are to be punished. They are going to be punished. Yechizkel speaks about Egypt, the arrogance of Egypt. How dare you? Or Babylonia, who becomes arrogant. So yes, the answer is that God is not the God only of the Jews, but rather of the entire world. And every nation that commits transgressions, not necessarily because of paganism, they almost have the right to be pagan, but because of the acts of cruelty, they are punished. Joyce? It's interesting when you said um, God turns his face. Uh, it's like Yeah, it's a very interesting concept. One that has to be explored much more fully. What does it mean, the hiding of God's face instead of Hanim? It's not punishing, but because he's not giving you this face. Good. You're not in Blessed. Again, where do you see that? You don't see that. Moses hid his face from God. Yeah, but I'm saying God only shows back to Oh, okay, in that context. Right, but the context there, first of all, the word, that word, to hide, is not found in Exodus 33. The first time it's found, actually, is in Itzavim, and over here. The interesting point with that term, not to expand at length over here, is that it appears... 33 times in the Bible. 
where God will hide his face. No human being in the same exact form, the way that God hides his face, can hide his face in the same way. It's what uh, certain terms in the Bible are used only of God. For example, the intense anger, Haron Ah, is never spoken about a human being becoming that kind of angry. That specific form, Vayichad Ah, only takes place with God to God throughout the entire Bible. There's certain terms that are only divinely um, spoken of. Certain terms. One of them is Astira Panayimahem. No human being ever can say that I'll hide my face from you in the way that God hides his face from us. So that, that's an interesting point. And one has to study in what context does Astira Panayim take place. When will God hide his face? It invariably takes place in the context when Jews do idolatry. When Jews turn themselves from God by doing idolatry, then God will hide his face and no longer bless them, and then whatever takes place, takes place. That's what the implication is. It's beyond punishment, almost. It's one thing if a parent cares enough to punish. It's much worse when the parent says, go your own way, I've given up on you, I don't care about you. At all. So there is a certain level of divine punishment called hester panim, which appears in the Tzavim, and then over here, where God says, and it's a context of idolatry as well, I sit upon them, I will hide my face from them, and then I will see what will be, what will be their end. Because a twisted generation. Remember, God's anger. It always strikes me when we have, you know, this whole thing is speaking that national, yes, national reward Absolutely. punishment. Nothing on the individual things. Right. Correct. I think the rabbis in general were concerned about the national, the, the, the private individual issue of a person's afflictions is not, not that with me here at all. Right. Correct. Um, I said that because of what helped me for us to have. you got to see Babylonian versus the Shabbos. Yeah, it's just, well, Babylonian does have individual theodicy. They have a Babylonian job. But, but, which we, which, the only claim is that there are 14 explanations for something for and so on, and almost not one of them. In Jewish or Babylonian? Well, there's a Babylonian job of a person who suffers terribly at, and blames his God for that, etc. But doesn't there is that it's not, it's, not, it's not getting it for reward and punishment, it's getting it for other reasons. The whimsicality of the pagan deities. Right, that's correct. That, that's why pagan deities were viewed. Correct, yeah. The question is, is there anything that's, that saves the day over here? We go on and on and on of the punishment that's going to take place for Jewish people. Verse after verse. Hashem is and then the, the slight comfort that we have at the end of Azinu is that God shall judge his nation. The Allah of David Neham, he will have, he will have comfort, he will comfort his servants. When he sees that they are weak of hand and abandoned, where nobody else takes care of them, left alone. And then when they say, where is my God? So, sadly, the moment has to come where we raise the question before God responds to us. Brings about his Right. And all paganism as well. Then, naturally, in order to restore Hashem, 
there has to be the opposite. Correct. Right. 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 A recognition of God. Of God and a recognition of our wrong. Right. Because of our ways. So that's that's hard because what happens if we don't? So the answer will be we'll be punished even more severely until we're willing to reconcile. Initiative has to come from us. Exactly. So till we say, where is God? The rock, the rock that we believe in. Till that point, we cannot hope for any kind of salvation. But once we do say that, then at the very end of Ha'azinu, we do have, God says, I am He. There's no God with me. I have the power to, to take away life and to bring life. I can harm and I can heal. Nobody can escape my wrath, my anger. And then so on. And then we pray that our enemies shall pay, shall be punished for all that they've done to us. And ultimately God does promise, Kidam Abadav Yinkom, because God shall in fact avenge the blood of His servants and pay back to the enemies and atone the ground, the land of his people. So, Ha'azinu does in fact end on this positive note, but it does give us the inclination that we have to be aware of our ways. We have to come back. We have to make the first step. And hopefully, we hope that that which we've suffered will in fact bring us to that point. But interestingly enough, Ha'azinu is monochromatic in that it sees all that takes place to us only as a result of transgression, of punishment. question that one has to raise, and again, here in Hazina we see it that way. We raise the question, is that the only theodicy? Is that the only way of viewing what takes place on the Jewish, to the Jewish nation? Have we always transgressed and therefore were punished? Is there a possibility of another dynamic, another God-man dynamic, which could take place, which would remove this from the area of sin and punishment. Are there any other models that one can think about? So certainly, Yirmiyahu presents one model in Echa. One model, or multiple models, I should say, in Echa. But we can even look at Iyov, who is one who has not transgressed, who is perfectly righteous, and yet afflicted, yet very intensely afflicted. And one almost sees a caricature of the first two chapters of Eeyore, those who know the first two chapters, where he's wonderfully fine and righteous, great man. Yet what happens? On the day, that she brings out the day is Rosh good, all the Malachim gather around. Among those Malachim are, is one Satan, the Satan, and God initiates the conversation. God says, have you paid attention to my man Eov? There's nobody like him. He's wonderful. I'm sorry? That's where it comes from. Exactly. Don't let the Satan answer. Don't ask any questions. And Satan says, oh, yeah, he's fine. Why is he fine? Because you've blessed him with wealth and children and all that. But take away all that. See, he'll curse you. So what happens? God, God says, okay, Satan, do whatever you want. But just it hayab smart. Don't, don't kill him. So this is fine. So he goes back. And then you have a series on the same day. His wealth is taken away. His children were all killed in a massive... The house collapsed on all that. Terrible situation. Terrible story. He sits down. Tears his clothes. He mourns. Says God has given. 
God takes away. Let me bless God's name. Fantastic. This, is the, this seems to be the right response sometimes. So the year passes. What happens next? Krishna happens again. The angels gather around. And who comes again? Satan. So God says, you fooled me, Satan. See, my Yom stood up. What a, what a wonderful human being. What a wonderful person. How dare you do this to me? Satan says, wonderfully so. Oh, yeah, sure. Because you didn't harm him physically. But physically harm him, put him in agony and pain, then he'll curse you. So God says, okay, I'm on. I'll bet again on Eov's back. I will do this again. And what does he do again? Again, Eov is then afflicted with horrible suffering, horrible pain, and he's quiet. And the Pasuk says about Eov, Lo hata Eov bisfatav. He didn't sin with his lips. Ramban wants to say about this, that he sinned in his heart. Maimonides will not say that about Eov, that he sinned. Only Ramban, Nahmadi says that he sinned, based on this kind of uh, reading of the Pasuk. Others say that he didn't sin. And we go to then through another 35, 36 chapters of Eov justifying who he is, what he's done. I am good. His friends say he's not good. But here's a very interesting model, alternate to the sin model, because ultimately, what do we conclude? Did Eov sin or not sin? He didn't sin. And in fact, God turns to the three friends who said, you sinned, you sinned, you sinned, and says about them, you cannot pray to me. Imagine this. God says, Eov, man of ultimate integrity, is the only one who can pray for the three friends to avoid punishment. Because you did not speak with sincerity and integrity. God wants sincerity. God wants integrity. Now, that's another model of a man afflicted without having sinned. There are many opinions as to where Eov comes from. Right? Where does Eov come from? One opinion is that he never lived. Rather, the rabbis constructed this model in order to create the possibility of well, no, not, not justifying God's ways, but rather the opposite, of justifying human beings' ways. Yeah. That's yes, justifying God's ways. I'm not justifying God's, we're justifying humans' ways. No, justifying how man could suffer. How could God let man suffer as a test? Yes, um, on Shabbat. That's Quran Shabbat. Yes, Shabbat. Right, so again, okay, good. So here we, we created another model Exactly the opposite of the model of Ha'azinu, which says what? One can suffer without having transgressed. You could be a completely righteous person, and I discussed last night extensively for an hour and a half, Yisurim. There are many reasons why God may afflict you, one of which is to test you, to atone. We even have this very bizarre notion, I put that in quotes, I'm not comfortable with it, of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. What I put in quotes, why I say it's very bizarre? Right. Well, because Christianity adopted it, and we therefore pushed it away. Christianity has adopted the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and they celebrate it. This is the, the mark of our Messiah, the suffering servant. But obviously, what I explained last night is that uh, Yeshu only followed the right script. He read Isaiah 53, and said, If I want to be Messiah, I have to suffer and die and atone for others. But it's a very Jewish concept. Which concept is that God will take an individual, 
and have him suffer to atone for the sins of others. Which is a, even its own level, a very striking concept. What's your question on that? Why should it be? Why should I suffer for somebody else? We should not do it that way. And yet, what this almost does is that it sort of, um, it's able to unify, it's able to make us mutually responsible. What you do could affect me. What I do affects you. So it's almost a necessary consequence of having Israel as a corporate, nation of Israel, as a corporate entity, as one interrelated, interconnected matrix of people. We all are involved with each other. We all do for each other, suffer for each other. You're suffering, I'm suffering. I might, and you might, you might see, might, you should not be saying, well, he's suffering, therefore, what does it do with me? I might be suffering because of you. So the rabbis, based on this Ishayanu Gino model, did create an alternate, a third model. We have the model of suffering for sin. That's Hazinu. And another model of Iyob. You didn't sin, God's testing you. You have another model of a suffering servant, which basically is what? Atonement. I am suffering for your sin. I am wonderfully righteous, is what the suffering servant in Yeshayahu Nun Gimel is all about. I am a righteous person, and I am carrying the weight of all of your sins. Okay, we're almost here. One more minute. Two minutes, okay? Because I have to stop anyway. I'm getting tired. Okay? And if you're losing, I'm getting tired or tighter. So, we have, we have alternate models here. So the first model the rabbis put over here is Ha'azinu. You suffered because of your sins. And therefore, part of Shabi'ah should be a honest, introspective glance at one's life. What is my life really all about? It's national life. It's nothing here about individuals. You just made a jump, which is not at all what the rabbis put All I would say is with the national corporate body... Well, wait, it's made up of individuals. No, but, not, no. but how would you explain that? We're okay. not talking about the individual. We're not talking... I agree with you. No, no. What I'm saying is that God's punishment is... The whole question is, are you being... Did you get... Did you get Stop. killed because... We gotta go. We're taking a long time. <laughs> we started another branch. But that's how we address it. It's addressing a national tragedy because of an overall national tendency. But every national tragedy is made up of individual deaths. But that would, so therefore, let God punish the individual. Take care. Uh, Bye-bye. That's what happens. Multiple individual punishments equals a corporate punishment. Take care. We're praying here in five minutes. Oh, you're praying some players else. I want to go about Lufian people. I must be. Okay. Take care. Good to see you. Um, I'm um, not at all. You know what I'm saying. That. The question is, the question is, the three models don't in any way speak about um, somebody stubbed their toe because um, they did something improper. The three models? No. Oh, no, not these models. No, it's macro we're discussing. The, the whole... That's what I'm saying, that the Bible doesn't have this at all. It's national. No, I agree. I agree that it's national. But also, there's an interplay between national and individual. 
Is there not? They can use of individuals acting on, on a national scale towards this nation. The difference is that I have, um, did I, no, no, did I not give charity and therefore I lose my money? Or did the nation as a whole um, show this tendency and therefore the nation as a whole will be punished?